Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Insight into Teaching Psychology. My name is AJ LaFerrera. I am on the marketing team at McGraw-Hill, and today we are tackling a really interesting subject in the intro psych curriculum, sex and gender. And I am joined by three great instructors, as always, uh, and I would love for them to quickly introduce themselves. Laura, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Thanks, AJ. I'm Laura King. Uh, I'm a personality and social psychologist, and I teach introductory psychology at uh, the University of Missouri, Columbia. And I'm Heather Collins. I am a cognitive neuroscientist. I teach more often than not introductory psychology, and I am presently at the Medical University of South Carolina. Hi, I'm Janelle Cavazos, and I teach introductory psychology, and I'm the coordinator for that program at the University of Oklahoma. Great. Well, you guys have all joined the podcast before, so thank you for joining again. Let's jump right in. Uh, The sex and gender chapter, when you guys tackle this in the intro psych course, what are your goals? What do you want students to take away from this chapter? I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is to to use this as an exercise in critical thinking also and in challenging assumptions. And it's a good it's a good way to really get them engaged in in critical thinking and engaging in multiple perspectives and challenging assumptions, as well as introducing some science behind sex and gender that they just didn't know about before. I agree with that. I think uh, my main takeaway is to make sure that we we challenge their assumptions on, uh, you know, some of the things that they've heard, some of the things that they've been raised with. teach in a relatively conservative state, and so some of the students are coming in without a lot of scientific knowledge on some of these topics, and I want to make sure that I'm able to to change some of those misconceptions and hopefully make things easier for others that they might encounter in the future. Yeah, I think similarly, one of the things that drives me crazy is that they This chapter, what's nice about this section of the class is that most of them have already read the chapter way before we get to it because they're so (laughs) interested in this topic. And, oh, my God, because this is the only chapter in the entire book that has sex in the title. Oh, they're so into it, right? And so you can count on the fact that they've done the reading. That's very exciting. But I also feel like even though they are – here they are, right? They're in the demographic. They are, they are where our culture is being created, right? This is who everybody cares about. And they're often really naive and embarrassed and just freaked out to be talking about sex, gender, sexuality, sexual behavior. They are uncomfortable and they are, you know, sort of not making eye contact and I think one of my uh, biggest goals, right, is to get them to feel more empowered to talk about sex, to think about sexuality as something that is part of uh, human behavior, like all the other topics we've discussed, and also to try to get them to think about it in ways that I feel, which is the thing that Janelle was alluding to, right? I, I want them to be better dates. I want them to be better 
I'm talking about <laughs> sex with people and having their partners be respected and having them get this. Like, it isn't that scary. If you were on a date with somebody and they, if you're going on a date with someone and they said, you know, let's go to this Chinese restaurant and you hate Chinese food, you wouldn't feel weird about thinking, you know what, I really like Chinese food. Can we try something else? Why is it so much harder to talk about sex that way? right? To say to somebody, you know, I don't feel like that today, or this is not really my thing. And to talk about tastes and, and preferences and what people like and how, you know, sex doesn't have to be this thing that people can't discuss in a very normal, calm way. And I think that will help them to, you know, maybe develop better skills in terms of interacting with people that they are sexually interested in or that they are romantically interested in and helping them understand, you know, sort of Drain the anxiety uh, away from that topic. So, I mean, we, there's, a, there's actually this picture, happens to be in the science of psychology, of these two people riding bikes together, right? And they're both wearing helmets. And it says something like, you know, these two people probably had a very uh, normal conversation about where are we going on this bike ride? How long will it be? What sort of safety equipment will we be using? And they didn't freak out. They just had a normal conversation. Why can't sex be like that too, right? That every people should be able to talk yeah. about these things without flipping out or feeling weird. And I, well, I'm, I've talked a lot already, but I'm going to say a lot, my impression, and I mean, I'm taking this impression from the shameful faces <laughs> that I see in the room, right? The three or 400 students looking at me, they secretly think they're weirdos and they're not, right? This, this, like, oh, you know, here's something. Or they might be, but not because of that. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I mean, no one's bigger, more of a weirdo than I am. But they are secretly thinking, like, whatever they like is weird. Whatever they think is wrong. You know, so I think a lot of my job is really also normalizing that conversation, normalizing sex and sexuality, and really talking about, you know, variation is the norm. And here's this place where people like different things. We don't think that's weird if it's about food. Why should we think it's weird when it's about sex? So I really try to make sure that they all have a, that we kind of get through this, uh, this thing where they, you know, and they're talking to me and who am I? But to talk about these uh, issues in a kind of calm, dispassionate way. And then the other goal I try to have, especially in talking about sex, not in terms of sexuality, but sex and gender, is that everybody in my classroom feels mentioned and noticed. And that means, you know, it does mean learning whole new vocabulary sometimes, but that everybody, anything I know exists will be mentioned uh, in terms of gender identities and sexualities so that everybody has a second where they got included in the conversation. And this is super challenging, but I want everyone to be there and all of them to feel like, oh, this is about me, even if I'm just mentioned, even if this, you know, the, the, the way I identify my, by myself is mentioned, it got a mention. I'm not a footnote. I'm actually part of this conversation. I think that's super important. Yeah. And the whole world appreciates your crusade to make them all better dates. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, so we've covered goals. What about <laughs> challenges? We kind of touched out on that a little bit uh, in our previous kind of segment, but what do you find from a student perspective 
are some of the greater challenges associated with the sex and gender chapter. I agree with Laura. I think a lot of the challenge is that they're sitting in a room, in my case, with 400 of their same age peers, and everybody's looking around like, I'm not going to say anything. Are you going to say anything? No way. I'm not going to say anything. And so I, I think there's definitely some awkwardness. There's a lot of awkwardness and, um, and some fear associated with that. That's a major challenge. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, for me in particular, and, of course, one of the reasons I love doing this is that we all teach things from such different perspectives and focus on such different areas of, of the content. But I think that one of the biggest challenges in, in my classroom is the misconceptions that they come in with, the prejudices that they come in with, and uh, really just getting them to have at least an open mind that maybe some of the things that they've been taught aren't accurate. And that, that's really difficult. And, you know, you can see it in their faces, that too. Some of them get very angry. Some of them have left the room. When, when I try to talk about, you know, some of these issues like, hey, th these are people too. Everybody deserves the same treatment. Um, that's really been challenged for me. So, um, I think that's a, dealing with that as one of the, the hot-button sensitive issues, especially in our world today, I think, I think we have an obligation to bring those issues to the forefront in a way that's couched in science, but that's really, really challenging for a lot of students. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with Janelle. I think I, I also teach in a fairly socially conservative area, and one of the challenges is students come in sometimes thinking everybody is just like them. And anyone who is different than they are with respect to sexuality, sex, gender, any of these things is an other, is not the same as them. And it's okay to use derogatory language. It's okay to talk about people different from them as if they're aliens because they just haven't right. been to expose to people who are, are different than they are. And I think one of the best ways to really get them to understand that, you know, we're all just people. We're all just people and we need to be loving and caring and open to everybody is to, to show them stories, not tell them, but show them videos of, of individuals who are different than they are talking about who they are and talking about what their life is like and what they go through every day and what, what their experience really is and really not just having it be a word. That, that is stigmatized, but destigmatizing it and, and putting a, a face and a story behind that and, and showing that everybody has a story and everybody has a life experience and it might be different than yours, but it's no less valuable. Right. I think that, um, I mean, I don't know if it is, I don't know if I think Missouri is a pretty red state, but I don't know that my the students who are in my classroom are particularly, I mean, many of them are from the cities, right? They're not, I don't think they're surprised to hear that there are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, non-binary, pansexual people in the world. And what, the way that I think about this is I often talk about how, you know, there's lots of different ways to learn about the world. There's lots of different ways to gain knowledge. And with psychology is a science. And so our way of understanding the world, our way of making judgments and decisions is about what does the science tell us? What do the data say? 
How, what do the data show? And so, you know, people can look to other sources for their beliefs, but we're here in a science class. We are our beliefs. What we take to be true is based on the data. And so here's what the data show, right? And I think that, that they can sort of live in that space with me where it's, they're sort of entertaining my goofy egghead way of looking at the world. But I think they are also getting something out of it. And I think that uh, certainly there are probably students in that room that welcome that opportunity to hear that their life experience is actually perfectly normal and fine and they're going to be successful and they're going to find love and they're going to have kids and they're going to be wonderful children and uh, everyone's going to live happily ever after. Okay, so that's looking at the challenge from the student perspective. What about challenges from the instructor perspective? What do you guys see? Well, it's definitely an incredibly yes. go ahead. No, no, say it's an incredibly no. rapidly evolving field and one of the ways that our students are readily aware of this is is actually not just the science behind the rapidly evolving field, but how this is impacting society every day. So we hear now frequently in the news of laws being changed, laws being enacted that didn't normally exist. So we have gay marriage being legalized across the country. We have Supreme Court cases. We have North Carolina attempting to ban transgender individuals from using the restroom of their choice. We have all sorts of different news stories popping up around gender and sexuality, and I think that's a, a great way to bring in interest to the classroom to help get our students on board and, and really start teaching it in a way that they think is interesting and approachable to get them involved right at the beginning of class. Yeah, I think that it is. It, what's fascinating is how fast the sort of societal changes are happening and sometimes, you know, the data haven't caught up. So you have, uh, you know, some, uh, a, a young person identifies as non-binary. Well, good luck finding the latest hot literature on non-binary identification, right, with a large sample and longitudinal design. <laughs> right, that's right, right. It doesn't exist. Or, you know, there's something, um, and they're, just even that, even talking about gender in a non-binary way, is, is, is a challenge. It's a challenge both for students to get it, it's a challenge for an instructor to talk about it, but I think what I, well, the way I've come around to this, right, first of all, there's a really cool paper in American Psychologist by, of course, Janet Shibley Hyde and her colleagues on challenging the gender binary and sort of talking about, can we talk about this in a way that, that can make sense to us, right? Because I think that students, when you talk about here's sex and then here's gender, and what they think is, yeah, gender can be, you can call it non-binary, but we know, like, sex is really binary, and then you have this thing <laughs> laid over. Right. So talking about it in, you know, in these other ways, right, to, to come up with ways to think about it. But for lots of people, you know, some, if a student comes and says, well, I'm, I'm pansexual, or a student comes and says, I'm asexual, there's not a ton of research to tell to guide us in terms of what what does this all mean, and so what I realized finally is that you know, but I'm a psychologist, right? And I now I, I do have two things that I know are right, right? That sort of guide me. 
One is that if you are someone, a, a psychologist who is a clinical psychologist, which I'm not, but if you're trying to help somebody, what you're hoping for um, is that everyone should be treated with respect and compassion, right, and that we can sort of optimize their best outcomes. So that's clear. And then while I'm waiting for all the science to come in, I have some science. And the science I have tells me, yep, there are, that there is gender diversity in the world, that there are people who identify in, in ways that, uh, and they always have existed. It's just we haven't really noticed them before or we haven't put those labels on. They haven't been in the mainstream conversation. So even as we have lots of stuff going on with the sciences just trying to keep up, I think there is enough to know just from the perspective of being a psychological scientist, people should be treated with respect and compassion, and there are diverse gender identities in the world. Yeah, I, I agree, especially with the, the comment about the research not catching up to society. And, and we could do an entirely separate podcast on the lag in scientific research being published. <laughs> Right. But in the meantime, I, I like to do something else, too, which is integrate it with other chapters in the book. So, unfortunately, uh -huh. this is one of those chapters that, with the, the ever-increasingly important and large size and massive content in our intro books, this is one of the most likely chapters to get axed. And it, it, I feel like instead of completely axing it and, and cutting it out of a semester, one of the fantastic things we can do is even if we don't have time to teach this chapter as a full entity, we can bring the content in and thread it throughout every other chapter, or almost every mm -hmm. other chapter at least, because it has such broad impacts on everything else. And so even when we talk about the research or lack of research, well, we can talk about what we do know. We can talk about MRI studies of the brain, for example, and there are some studies mm -hmm. that show sex differences, and those are you know, more old-fashionedly defined males versus females, and what does that mean? And then we could talk about correlation versus causation, and that these MRI studies are really correlational. So how does that change our interpretation of, of sex and gender? And even the issue of non-binary, as you said, Laura, that a lot of students just think, like, that, that sex really is so binary. It's this or that. And I can tie that back even to brain imaging research, which is, People think handedness is binary, right? Are you left-handed or are you right-handed? And you can ask students that, and they clearly have an answer, and most of them immediately know what they are. But every now and then, you get a student who says, I'm ambidextrous. I can use both hands. Okay, well, what does that mean, and how do you know? And even if you think you're left or right-handed, uh, in MRI studies, one of the screening procedures that's done more often than not is a handedness inventory. And that's because left and right handedness is not absolute. It's actually not binary. It's really on a continuum. And some people are more or less left handed, more or less right handed. And explaining that to them and getting them to understand really the impacts of, of assuming something is binary when it's not for something that's pretty non-threatening like handedness, I think can be an open door to making an analogy to thinking about being non-binary when it comes to gender and sex. Yeah, that's a great uh, analogy. That's awesome. Okay, so Heather, you kind of started to touch on this, but one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we moved into some of the examples that you guys use in the classroom, where do you cover this? So 
Heather, you mentioned that uh, sometimes this does not get covered on its own. If it's not its own chapter, where does it tend to fall? Where do you typically have an opportunity to cover it? Yeah, I, I typically do not have space to teach this, unfortunately, on its own. More often than not, I thread it through really heavily through research methods and through uh, the brain chapter. And partially that's because I spend more time on those chapters because those tend to be the more difficult chapters for my students. So while I'm immersing them in those chapters, it's the greatest opportunity for me to bring in some issues with sex and gender and use those as some, some teaching moments in these chapters and relate it back to research methods and brain and behavior. I give this chapter, um, I do one day on the chapter itself, and I put it right in between the conversation on development, which I tend to do a lot of since I, I used to teach developmental as well. And so Lifespan is just one of those chapters that I can never get through quickly. And so I tend to do uh, one day on sexuality and gender right after development. I think they go together pretty well. And then the chapter after is personality. So it just sort of fits into a who are you turning out to be sort of a, of a module, I guess. And, and the flow seems to be pretty good by that point since they, have, you know, understand how we develop sort of as a whole by that point. I can talk about things like, uh, you know, sexual orientation emerging and adolescence and trying on different things and things like gender constancy along with some of the other issues we talked about in early childhood. So it just, it sort of blends together well. Yeah, I cover it usually in a unit that has motivation and emotion, gender and sexuality, and personality, and that comes right after we've done development. I agree there's a lot of, it's very, it does, uh, to me anyway, it ties really well into developmental psych and, of course, motivation and emotion. But And I think, too, it's, you know, it goes well as well, I would say, with social psych because of the issues of prejudices and attitudes and mm -hmm. close relationship research. So it really Absolutely. does, I guess you could say, it lends itself to all of these, right? And the idea is I do, I spend at least one day and sometimes two on this topic, which is a lot, right? In an intro class, every, if you ask everybody, you know, what, are you, what must you cover, right? Research methods, neuroscience. Uh, learning and memory. I mean, there's a lot to cover in intro psych to take a day and talk about gender and sexuality. But the students, like if you ask them, so which one of these chapters should we cover? It's going to be abnormal and gender and sexuality. <laughs> right, right. Oh, I'm really curious about classical conditioning. It's not going to come up. And I almost feel like, and it's so in my yeah, class, so said no oh, student ever. Right. And it, it, in my class, the, the gender and sexuality stuff falls towards the end of the, like the beginning of the end in some ways, right? So I would do uh, abnormal uh, psychological disorders and therapy at, at the very end. So this is like the last thing we cover before we get to the last chunk of the class. And so I just almost feel like they deserve it. They deserve it. They've worked so hard. We've done all these other chapters about which they have you know, some interest, but maybe not a ton, they're dying to hear about this, right? They already read it. It's in there. You know, they read this this chapter, the, the first week of class. It's time to finally talk about it. So 
I think that it is almost, I have to admit, like I, I feel that it's almost like a vacation for all of us to stop and talk about a topic. <laughs> There's not going to be, like I'm not going to have to worry. No one's going to fall asleep. It's just hysterical, right? And you stand up there and you've been doing it so long and you say vagina and you say penis and they're just sitting there. And it's like <laughs> it's so hilarious that these poor, you know, they're these young adults, just really many of them hungry for information about this topic that is of the utmost importance in their evolutionary uh, task. Uh, and so I think that it's actually really great. And actually, I want to mention, I do think that an intro psych instructor, because we see so many students and many of them are away from home for the first time, and because we see we have that contact with them, right, I feel like talking with them about sex isn't that different from talking with them about drinking alcohol, right, trying to talk about, like, you need to make wise decisions, right? You need to make choices for yourself that, you know, why are you here? What is important? And I think uh, talking with them about things like affirmative consent and, like, why is it, why would it ruin anything if, if you, you know, if you made dinner for somebody, would it really ruin it if the person told you, I love this food, I can't wait to eat it, right? Is that bad somehow? <laughs> no, it's okay for us. And, and Laura's back to sex and food. <laughs> I'm talking about food, but I'm saying, well, yes, and then we have hand sanitizer again. But I mean, I think that it's so important for them to have that empowerment where they feel like they can have those kinds of conversations in their life. And I think it could really help. I mean, I think about, you know, I, if you think about being a large institution and the things that might happen on a football weekend, right? And often bad things happen and they involve alcohol and they might involve uh-huh. sex or violence or aggression. And I think that really, like, you know, sort of heading it all off at the path and talking about taking care of each other and talking about how important it is for me to know that they are all whole and healthy and hanging in there in my classroom throughout that semester, I think is super important. And I think sex is one of those places where many of them, you know, they just haven't gotten the kind of information that is, like, as Janelle was mentioning, some of the information they have is not accurate. They were not, they didn't have, you know, if you ask them, how many of you think you had a great sex education ex- experience in, in, um, <laughs> in high school or middle school? They just look at you like you're insane. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, right. None of them. If they so had one at all, they were horrified by it and are trying to forget it and still don't want to talk about it, <laughs> you know, 10 years later. Yeah, right. No, I think, I think it's funny, Laura, that you talked about, um, yeah, they definitely pay attention to sex and alcohol and how you kind of put it at the end because you, you want it to be like a little bit of a treat for them. And I, I agree with you completely, and that's funny, but because of those reasons, that's one of the reasons I, I actually kind of integrated it at the beginning. So uh-huh. I, I feel like when it comes to the beginning of the term and I hit them with brain and behavior and research methods, students are not typically excited about these chapters. But these chapters, I feel like, are really great opportunities to infuse whatever content I want. Because mm-hmm. I can talk about brain and its relation to anything. I can talk about research methods on anything. So what I tend to do is actually use these two chapters as opportunities to infuse additional content about important topics. And uh-huh. sure enough, definitely sex and gender comes into that because they like it, they pay attention, they get engaged, they think it's interesting. Also, drugs and alcohol come up as repeated examples in content mm-hmm. topics. 
And, and then just, just for a little broccoli and with the candy, I like to also use examples of learning and studying because I, I would really like them to actually learn how to learn and study at the beginning of the term. So those are, those are typically the, the three things I infuse at the beginning with research methods and brain behavior. So I feel like that's a, it, it definitely gets them paying attention. And one of the advantages for me is that because I don't get to spend an entire day toward it, I just get little snippets here and there that whatever I introduce for those first two chapters with respect to gender and sexuality, they bring up later as examples. So they're already comfortable with talking about it. Maybe they want to know when development comes along, oh, is this like what, would I, you know, what we talked about two weeks ago with sexuality? And I can say, yeah, that's it, and we can bring it up again. So it becomes a comfortable example, a comfortable area for them to ask questions about and a comfortable area for us to foster meaningful discussions in the classroom and engage in critical thinking exercises about gender and sexuality across multiple chapters throughout the entire semester, one little snippet at a time. Okay, so we have tackled some of your goals. We've talked about the challenges, where you teach it. Let's jump into the actual classroom. So you're teaching sex and gender. How do you guys kick off your class? Well, I don't know how do people do it. I, I honestly start off the class by talking about, you know, those, those issues about did you think you had a good sex ed experience in high school or raise your hand if and things like that. But I think that it's a very different, it's so different, in, at least in my experience, right? because they really did already do the reading. It's completely different. And they're actually, they're listening, they wanna know. It's a very different, and in a, in a nice way, uh, we don't, they laugh, they're laughing, right? They're, they're ready, they wanna hear about sex. So I think that it isn't, it doesn't have the same kind of challenges maybe that other topics do where, gee, I need this hook. Um, this is something they're thinking about all the time. So you don't really have to warm them up for this topic. That's what I'm saying, yes. I don't find anyway. One of the things I've done in the past that I've, that I've really liked doing, um, and we've already kind of talked about it a little bit, is uh, sex ed. So I've asked them before, like, what are some of the myths that you remember believing as a kid? Or maybe you still believe, and we can, you know, help you out with that today. And so I use um, I use another uh, another technology tool to do a discussion board um, while my class is running, and that's a mm -hmm. great place to put this because a lot of people won't raise their hand and answer that question in a class of 400, but they will anonymously type it on a discussion board that I can then put up in the class and and you know show them like this is what people believe, and you get like. I mean, you get some really crazy ones. I think the one that I remember the most that stands out is a kid who was told that if he drinks Mountain Dew before having sex, the Mountain Dew will kill all the sperm and he won't be able to get someone pregnant. And there's a lot of, of myths wow. like that that they hear about. Yeah, dangerous. <laughs> that, they, that they hear about. And, you know, you can kind of see some of them like, yeah, I thought that too. And then just every now and then you have the one that says, wait, that's not true. And so, oh you know, do some good, <laughs> do some good along with it, but it certainly warms them up to the, the, you know, the conversation if they're a little hesitant about what we're going to be talking about. That's fantastic. So are they writing those on, a, on their phones or on, a, on laptops or 
Whatever it is, yeah, whatever they want to, um, whatever they want to be using that the program allows you to use your phone or an iPad or a laptop. Um, but it, okay. it, the answers, they come up anonymous um, if I said it that way, which, of course, I do for this. Um, and so, right. uh, yeah, so you can see in real time their discussions sort of pop up on the screen. Janelle, if you so want to Janelle, mention we, the name of the program you use, you're welcome to do that. Oh, I use Top Hat, which is an in-class student response system, usually associated mm -hmm. with, like, clicker questions or multiple-choice questions. But it has this discussion board feature where you can run it either in the background or bring it up to the front of what you're presenting to allow them to ask questions and answer them in real time, and that's what I do for this. I'm curious to know, what are some of the more interesting myths you've heard from students who are typing these in? Um, well, I mean, I mentioned the, the Mountain Dew one. That was, definitely, uh, that was definitely a big one. There's a lot of them surrounding water, um, just sort of the permeability of <laughs> sperm in water, um, whether or not you can and can't get pregnant. There's a lot dealing with gravity. Uh, whether or not um, it's possible standing up, oh laying God. down, you know, all of that kind of thing. There's, there's, still, <laughs> there's still a lot of that out there that they're not quite sure about. And occasionally, it doesn't happen every semester, but sometimes we can actually bring in some really cool um, genetic stuff, talking about how it's possible, for example, for um, fraternal twins to have two different fathers. Um, that's come up before. Uh, and, you know, so some interesting stuff that, that again, talks together about what you were talking about with being able to bring it back into, you know, biology and behavior genetics and things like that. All right, so Janelle, you brought us into the classroom a little bit. What else are you guys doing within the sex and gender chapter are you guys doing to help students kind of understand some of the different concepts and understand more about sex and gender? A few months ago, I found a, a really good documentary that CBS News did, and I think it's called Gender, The Space Between, and I can send you a link, but it's a great documentary that just tells the story of, of several transgender individuals and, and how they came to be and, and what their lives are like and what their struggles have been, what their successes have been. And I think it's great because it's really approachable, it's interesting, it's exciting to hear from real people, and it's also a tool that I can use in my online classes, which is nice. I know that during when we talk about not so much just sexuality uh, as a whole, but specifically sexual orientation, rather than do a whole lot of what causes it, I do a whole this is what doesn't cause it um, uh -huh. sort of a thing. And because I think, you know, the science tells us we know a lot more about what doesn't cause it than what does, and a lot of the prejudices that we have are centered around that information. And I'm pretty in their faces about it because I don't have a lot of time left by that point, um, but also I think it's, it's really important to drive those points home. So I talk about, like, the very first one is sexual orientation is not a choice. And that sends some people, um, you know, they're not thrilled with that. But I actually put up a couple of the stories about gay penguins. I mean, who can be mad at a gay penguin, right? Like, it helps right. to diffuse the situation because, if you know, you talk about, like, we see this in the animal kingdom and most cute gay penguins, like, nobody's mad at them. So it helps. I talk about conversion therapy um, not being effective and, in fact, being very dangerous. I talk about the fact that children who are raised in gay and lesbian households aren't any different than any other kids 
they're also not any more likely to be gay or lesbian themselves. So I, I sort of try to just hard hit, dispel all of those myths in a funny way and in an entertaining way, but in a way that they can take home. In some cases, I very much know, because they told me afterwards, in some cases, take home to mom and dad and tell them, look, I'm not the bad person you think I am. And that's mm-hmm. heartbreaking, but I think that's, that's a part of charge. That's a part of our responsibility in, in this position of changing students' lives is to, to help them see research behind what they've always known to be true, um, that, that, you know, that they've got science on their side now able to say, look, we know this. And they can take that and share it, hopefully, with people in their lives that here might not be as accepting. Yeah, I think that's so important. And you just don't know who's out there in that sea of faces that really you're throwing them a lifeline by just describing science. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I actually think that is a great place to end the podcast. But before we do that, I want to give each of you an opportunity, as we always do, to share some parting thoughts on the sex and gender chapter. Would somebody like to kick us off? I will. I'll say my parting thoughts. I was just, as we were talking about this, I was thinking about the first time I taught a sex and gender, an entire class on sex and gender. And I can't believe it. I mean, it was true. My cheeks were probably red the entire semester. I was absolutely uh, mortified <laughs> the things I was talking about, and, but trying really hard to to do it. And so if there are instructors listening who are thinking, are you three women out of your minds, right? It, it takes, well, it well yes, we are. But... I have absolutely nothing, right? I have no shame. And I feel uh, really good. I think it's something that people should practice, I think, talking about this. By the way, I've had PhD students coming through here who have gone on job interviews and who were told, oh, yeah, we would like you to give a lecture on uh, gender and sexuality as, your, as part of your job interview. So I think that it is get over the nerves, folks, open up, talk about these things, get that awkwardness out of there because it's not, you know, we have an important science to share, and as I think both. Uh, Janelle and Heather have shared. There, there are really important opportunities here. It's time to really think about how in within psychology we have a really a wonderful message to share with our students on the topic of sex and gender and uh, not doing it and not doing it well I think is, is kind of wrong. I think that's a great point. The only The only parting thought I really have is I think it's really important in this chapter to be purposeful in what's covered and how to cover it. Uh, Laura, one of one of the first conversations we ever had, I remember you saying something about, uh, you know, this is one of the only chapters we can be sure the students are already reading, um, mm-hmm. and and you said that again here, and I I I really that hit me because it meant that I didn't have to work quite so hard making sure we cover everything. So for That's example, right. I don't really I don't talk about the sexual response cycle because I'm betting they've read that. I want to talk mm-hmm. more about, you know, again, the things that are challenging, you know, the transgender movement and the sexual orientation and the things that, that like, like I mentioned earlier, that people need to hear. And so I think that depending on where you teach and depending on what your goals are, being, being mindful of the fact that, you know, we don't have so much time to cover all of this stuff. 
and what could be life-changing to people versus what are they going to read on their own, I think is a really excellent way to look at parsing out your time. Yeah, that's great. I agree, ladies, with both. Everything you've said, really, and these are incredible points. I want to say to instructors out there who think that you can't teach everything and you this chapter doesn't have room in your class, that it does. And it might not be that you could teach the entire chapter in and of itself, but you can take important concepts from this chapter and you can infuse it throughout so many other chapters. I mean, I think when we were talking, we all named total about mm -hmm. six or seven chapters. We can talk about it in brain and behavior, research methods, development, personality, social psychology. We can talk about it in almost every chapter associated with an intro book. So there is room and there is space. And I think it's important to make room and space to teach gender and sexuality because these are topics our students are faced with every day, whether they themselves are undergoing a particularly challenged time in their lives or whether they're paying attention to what's happening in society and how laws are being changed that could affect all of us based on gender and sexuality. And with respect to the awkwardness, yeah, it's there, but it's always more awkward for the students than it is for us. So we need to just embrace the awkwardness and really go ahead and teach what we can from this chapter because it's not about us, it's about our students. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to take away and remember just a handful of things from an introductory psychology class, sexuality and gender are probably pretty high up there on that list. Well, I think with that, great time to leave off. Heather, Janelle, Laura, I want to thank the three of you for joining us. And for everybody listening to the podcast, I want to thank you for joining us as well. And hopefully we'll see everybody next time. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.